What's up, everybody? This is Peter Nesbitt from Team Pay, and you're listening to Awkward Conversations, Tales from the Finance Department. Finance professionals are often forced to be the bad guy, which can lead to some uncomfortable conversations with employees about business purchases. On this show, I sit down with finance leaders to discuss their most awkward conversations and what they've learned throughout their careers. Listeners can earn free CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app from the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. My guest today is Jack McCullough. Jack's career has included being a CFO at over 26 companies, as well as founding the CFO Leadership Council. Thanks so much for doing this, Jack. You are our first guest here on this podcast. Well, thank I'm glad to be here, but I wonder, you decided to have a podcast on awkward conversations, and I'm the first guy you thought of. So, should I be honored by that? I think so. You know, okay. you're one of the most experienced CFOs I know, and even in your career as the CEO of the CFO Leadership Council, I'm sure you've heard some crazy stories. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I've got a, a, a huge data bank of stuff, so. Yeah. Well, so our podcast is called Awkward Conversations because, you know, finance leaders like us, it's often forced to ask employees awkward conversations and questions about company spending. For example, why didn't you get this purchase approved in advance? Or why did you put 20K on this corporate card when our policy says it needs to be on invoice? So in the spirit of our, the topic, Jack, you know, tell me about the most awkward finance conversations that you've ever had with an employee. Happy to. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say that I would handle it differently today than I did at the time, uh, you know, partly because, you know, I'm just a different person and, you know, partly because society has changed. But mm -hmm. I, uh, I, it was my first time as a CFO for a company. And um, we had one salesperson who was, you know, what you'd call an elite performer. Uh, mm -hmm. We had seven salespeople in North America, and he was bringing in half the revenue himself. Wow. And uh, so he's really good and really valuable. But he, um, I'd been, he'd been working for, with us for a few months, and I got a receipt. I'll, I'll be delicate. He, uh, to thank a customer for closing a significant deal, he um, hired a sex worker and mm, introduced whoa. him. Whoa. Yeah. To, I don't want to say to his credit. But he didn't try to hide that from me. Like he didn't get a receipt, you know, a fake receipt from a restaurant or something like that. He, he, he described it accurately within the expense report. He showed a receipt from the place, which you've heard of. And he, talk about a little bit awkward, right? <laughs> so it's Yeah, like well, what he, was your response? I told him I thought it was kind of absurd. And he pointed out to me, we were, we were a pretty small company. And, you know, he pointed out to me it was a high six figure, maybe even a seven figure sale. Uh, you know, like it was like third of our revenue for the year from the one customer. And he also said the activity took place in Las Vegas. If I'm, if I haven't been clear enough about what he did and uh, it's not illegal <laughs> in Las Vegas, what he did. So he's like, you're not breaking any laws. I'm not hiding anything from you. This is what I did for a customer who, you know, is significant. And that led to a series of awkward conversations because, as you might imagine, you're being a CFO mm -hmm. yourself. I, I wasn't really inclined to pay it, but I, I will yeah. say I, I did kind of find myself in the minority of that one. So. so, so did you ultimately pay it? Was it in policy? You know, it, it wasn't explicitly against policy, right? <laughs> yep. But yeah, I ultimately did end up paying it. You know, I sort of held my nose, and mm -hmm. I did say that if it happened again, I 
would pay would not pay, and if someone forced me to, I would leave. Wow. I you know I was like a you know newly minted MBA. Yeah. Uh, late twenties, early thirties. I wouldn't give in so easily today. So yeah, but no, no, but, it yeah. Make, makes sense. That's a that's a real awkward conversation. I I guess that was an conversation with your employee. I'm sure, but I'm sure this got brought up to your CEO as well. Yeah, and board members too. Oh, and board members. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, I mean, to to me, it was a it was a pretty big deal for you know something that was a couple hundred dollars or something. I I kind of forget, but you know, I went went to the the CEO and he didn't didn't like it, but I'll say he didn't have the problem with it that I did. Mm-hmm. And I actually asked a, a board member, and we were a private company, and um, you know the some of the board members were against it and some were for it. I, but you, you know, so it was just a series of awkward conversations. Like, is this really what we have to do to sell our product, and what does it say for the future? So, well, Jack, you're definitely our our, our first guest in this podcast, but that will be a pretty high bar to pass <laughs> uh, in terms of the most awkward finance conversations to have with employee. Yeah, high bar or low bar, I guess, depending oh, yeah. on your perspective, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, we did certainly have the conventional, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of finance versus sales and marketing tension. I remember I wasn't a CFO, but my first job, the sales and marketing people used to call us bean counters. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my boss, who was, you know, kind of an old school CFO, he, uh, he called marketing arts and crafts. <laughs> oh, it, that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, a, a great employee or interdepartment relations uh, in, in yeah, that sort of I'd like to say he was kidding, but I have no reason to believe that he was. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Well, that that's a, a, a great intro and maybe a great segue of what makes a rock star CFO, Jack. I know your first book you put together is called The Secrets of a Rockstar CFO. Do you want us to give a quick synopsis of the book before we jump into a few questions? Sure. Happy to. And it was, you know, a bit of an accidental book because I didn't really set up with a plan to write a book. But through the CFO Leadership Council, and I'm also involved with an annual conference at MIT Sloan, I've I've had the opportunity to meet, you know, some of the best CFOs in the country or, you know, perhaps in the world too. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were generous with their time and I listened well and took some notes. And uh, from these conversations, I actually developed, it was just a, I was going to sort of do a course around it. Mm-hmm. And um, I identified nine commonalities they have. And uh, the I, my vision was, you know, there'd be a course for controllers who wanted to become CFOs. And in fact, I shared it with several CFOs, perhaps even you, I don't really know yeah. for sure, but said, you know, what do you think? Is this some good content for your controller? And they told me it's actually really good content for us. And uh, so, you know, I gave the presentation a few times at the time. And I was back then I was calling it Habits of Highly Effective CFOs. Yeah, I had a presentation. Yeah, I, I felt like when it was a book, I couldn't really do that to the Covey people. They they probably couldn't stop me, but it it seemed like I was kind of plagiarizing from them. So, I'm a, a bit of a headbanger, as you're aware, mm-hmm. and um, you know, trying to think of a book that reflected my own personality and secrets of rockstar CFOs kind of left off left off the page. Great. Well, so I want to dig in one step deeper, but before we do that, you know, for everyone this um, who may be listening to this podcast, it might be also. We worth a quick plug on CFO Leadership Council. What that is, what's your role there? I know I've referenced it once, you've referenced it, but just real quick as well. Sure. It's a professional association for CFOs, and membership is open to CFOs and people who, you know, are clearly on the path to becoming a CFO, like a controller or a VP of finance, people like that. But it's a uh, global organization, although about 90% of our members are in North America. 
And we're all about, you know, great content and a very robust network for CFOs. Uh, we've learned that CFOs love to learn from each other. And the mission is simply to empower CFOs to grow their organizations. Great. And what a, what a great mission that is. And has certainly led you to, uh, you know, write this first book. So although each of these CFOs passed, you said you talked, how many CFOs do you talk to in this process? Uh, it, it's hard to say because I didn't set out to write a book, but I tried to recall them all. And I concluded it was 41 that I spoke wow. to over the years. So, but, uh, so across all these unique paths, like you talk about how rockstar CFOs share many traits. Can you share some of these top examples? Sure. And, you know, the, the 41, but, you know, what might be interesting is that I, um, they weren't similar. You know, I interviewed Silicon Valley startups. I interviewed two CFOs from Fortune 50 companies, uh, some leaders of great nonprofits. So I, I think I got a good cross-section. And, and I did come down to nine that just about all of them mentioned. There were three in particular that, that everybody mentioned. And the first one was strategic thinking or strategic partnering. And, you know, a lot of it came out with the relationship they had with the CEO, uh, a very, you know, not a 1A and 1B type of relationship because they recognize that the CEO is the boss, but very much a partnership. You, you know, it doesn't mean that they're taking family vacations together or that they're golfing together or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But within work, there's a lot of respect for each other. And it wouldn't be that way if you were sort of the old school CFOs who could only report history. They have a lot of strategic insights and they're great strategic thinkers. And then the other one is ethical leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of CFOs reminded me that not only are they themselves expected to be ethical, which I, I kind of think is, you know, table stakes for CFO that he or she's ethical, but I think that they need to provide a climate of ethical leadership where people understand poor ethics won't be tolerated. And you need to be thinking about ethics in every important decision. You know, ethics is one of those things you can't do it 90% of the time. You have to, you're, if you're ethical 90% of the time, that means you're not ethical. So, you know, mm. providing that leadership. And then the last one I think that's, uh, that's pretty much universal is that they work cross-functionally. They're not siloed within the world of finance and accounting. And uh, one of my friends, actually, she gave me great advice that I repeat a lot. She doesn't think of herself as a financial executive. She thinks of herself as a versatile, cross-functional financial executive who happens mm. to be an expert in finance. And subtle difference, but, you know, when you approach your job that way, I think it will prove valuable. Yeah, I think that makes like, so much sense, you know, even in my, in my experience as well. Like, there's this, a lot of finance executives have a deep expertise in finance, but they have to have knowledge of so many other functions with, you know, within the executive team. Yeah, and, you know, a, a generation ago, you could be a, a good CFO just by being good at finance and accounting. In fact, you know, often that was the case that the, the best accountant would ultimately become the CFO of the company. And, you know, the simpler world, I guess, not really sure, but uh, today business is too complex and they can't have somebody who's just reporting history as part of the executive team. Yeah. And you mentioned strategy here. Like, what does strategic thinking mean to you in this context? Yeah, and it is one of those things, it's different for everybody, but it's really understanding the success drivers of the business. So, you know, a lot of times it, it might be, you know, working, understanding customers, understanding, mm -hmm. you know, what all of your employees do, what your place is in the market and taking that knowledge and quite likely, unless you're, unless you work in the one in a hundred companies where the CEO is a former CFO, 
but it, it's quite likely you're the financial ex, you're the only financial expert on the executive team. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you master the strategy, if you have a genuine understanding of your company's products or services, why the customers buy them, what your position is in the market, combine that with your financial expertise. And, you know, you're a critical, invaluable member of the leadership team. And, you know, we saw that during COVID. Personally, I have not been a CFO since 2007. And I saw a lot of companies that their survival was largely due to a lot of people's efforts. But, you know, the CFO is right there doing it. And I'll say that the CFOs from my generation, not that we were not as smart as sort of the younger generation of CFOs, but, you know, we just weren't prepared for that sort of thing. We would have sort of resorted to reporting the history after it happened rather than making it happen. So, Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think of kind of the two core functions these days of CFOs is one is risk management is how do you manage the downside? And the second is capital allocation of like, how do you manage the resources you have to reinvest in the business and drive ROI? Yeah, that's kind of the name of the game, right? You talk to venture investors or PE investors or any others, and their conversations with the CFO are going to revolve around that. So, Yeah, I think that's a good segue about you know, CFOs from your generation to modern day. In your opinion, who is an example of a rock star CFO? Let's see. One who I've always been impressed with, and she... I'm saying this partly because she was a, uh, an unknown contributor to the book, but uh, Gina Mastantuono, and I may be mispronouncing that name, but she's the CFO of ServiceNow. Mm. And, you know, it, she's interesting because she really understands the business. Now, it probably helps that CFOs are the customers. Of whatnot, <laughs> yeah. But I was impressed with her before she worked there. She used to work for Ingram Micro, which, you know, she called the, the biggest comp company no one's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, she really understood the business as well as anyone. She talked a lot about her relationship with the CEO, still continues to do so. In fact, she's like a really good, sort of a fun person to follow on social media. You know, she's very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. And, you know, guess what? She, I've never seen her post about debits and credits. She's always talking about the team, <laughs> team successes, the customers, that type of thing. So, yeah, may not know a lot about tax strategies. So, but uh, yeah. in terms of strategy, business, she knows that. Another one is uh, Micah Chandler. He is mm -hmm. the CFO of Fanatics, you know, the sporting business. Yeah. Just, you know, a guy who just really understands his company's business. He was a, a big wig at Nike for a long time and, you know, uh, joined Fanatics there. Uh, I'm not sure if they've gone public, but... You hire a guy like him to take them public. And then uh, just to, you know, another person, I don't know her well, but the CFO of St. Jude's Hospital, I was talking to her at the beginning of COVID. And you talk about, you know, every company had to restructure, right? Yeah. But you talk about a company that really had to restructure, right? Their, their mission was suddenly more critical than ever. They had, they had a lot more issues, and yet they had to take a lot of safety protocols. So even things like how people park had to be rethought. And, you know, how you admit people. And she was involved in that, you know, day and night, working with all sorts of people, tightly regulated environment, you know, working for a SaaS company. Mm -hmm. You can just kind of do things without, you know, worrying about a lot of regulation. And she just impressed the heck out of me for somebody who was really thoughtful, looked at a problem that seemed unsolvable and helped solve it. Yeah, it's really interesting that compliance is a big part of the role of the CFO. And I think that compliance ties back to the ethical framework you mentioned of, understanding the risks, the, the implications of a decision now, even if it might be seem pragmatic, could have legal or moral ramifications later. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, um, I suppose compliance will always be part of the 
you know, chief financial officer's role. I, you know, I can't imagine it wouldn't be. But mm -hmm. if you've noticed, you know, bigger companies, the C-suite itself is expanding. You, you know, there's positions in it. Chief accounting officer is a relatively new position. You know, I, mm -hmm. I never heard of one until 10, 12 years ago. But the, there's like a chief compliance officer. Who ever heard of that a few years ago? Chief diversity officer. Yeah. Chief, uh, chief environment officer. And I, there are even companies with chief ethics officers. And the business world is getting more complex. It's too complex for one person. But yeah, it, it is one of those things that I just can't see CFOs not being the ultimate res person responsible for compliance and, and legality and ethics. So, yeah. But yeah, at the start of my career, it was like CEO, COO, and CFO. Those were the, the C-suite was pretty much those three in most companies I knew. So, yeah. And so you, so you mentioned these three rock star CFOs. Like, why are they a good model for other CFOs? I think it's their, you know, they sort of embody it all. Like, you mm -hmm. know, their strategic thinking, their team players, they're, they're great at building teams. They're highly ethical. They're committed to that as a way of life. And they take the time to truly understand their business and not just say, yeah, that seems like a good idea, but actually seek out growth paths, seek out new opportunities, you know, whether it be a new market, a new product line, whatever it might be. It's not just a back office job anymore. And the ones that are sort of forward and outward looking, those are the ones that are going to ultimately be successful in the world and the ones that CEOs are going to want to partner with. Yeah, I and mean, it sounds like those are some big shoes and big expectations to follow. So you know, what role does a community play in helping CFOs navigate their careers or complex professional situations like this? Yeah, you know, community, it's a big deal, right? Because, like a, mm -hmm. a lot of... Um, it's over and under and everything else, right? I mean, you yourself would probably say you wouldn't be successful if you didn't have a great team around you, right? Mm -hmm. I've had so many CFOs tell me when they start their job, they immediately want to hire a good controller. So, you, you know, someone beneath them to sort of make the trains run on time. And then, you know, mentoring too. I Out of everybody that I interviewed for the book, there wasn't a single person that even if they didn't use the word mentor, they didn't describe a mentor type of relationship, not only early in their career, but in their current career as a CFO. So it's mm -hmm. sort of like they have almost their own um, a, a phrase that's become popular in the last couple of years, or maybe I'm just hearing about it for the first time, is your personal board of directors. And so it's a community of people who are vested in your success. You know, it's your employees, it's your boss, it might be, you know, the literal board of directors for the company you work with, it's your mentors, more and more of them hire coaches as well. So, you know, the community plays a big, big part. It's, you know, no CFO is successful by herself or himself. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense. You know, my, actually my path into CFO Leadership Council was that it was, I happened to get a email forwarded to me my first week as the first time head of finance um, at, a, at a small startup in New York City. And not knowing what I didn't know, I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to learn from, you know, people who have been there and done that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's great. And I wasn't thinking in, in that light, but you, you sort of meant like the other CFOs, I think, right? Yeah. And what's interesting, I recently did a focus group with our members. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think about 50, I, it was three different groups, and I think maybe 50 CFOs participated in it. And that's all they talked about. They didn't talk about improving the quality of the content or that sort of thing. It's like, we just really want to learn from our peers. And you're part of CFO Connect, which um, mm -hmm. for other people, it's basically, it's a form where if you're a CFO and you're having a problem, you can share it with the group of other CFOs and 
you know, it's very unlikely that whatever problem you're having, you're the first person to have faced it. And in those rare circumstances that it, that it is, you can, you know, reach out to a bunch of CFOs that can help you solve the problem. And, you know, so that community, that's just invaluable. That's why I think, you know, I encourage people to join a professional association, whether it's mine or somebody else's, you know, horses for courses, right? It, it may not be the right mm-hmm. rate for you, but, uh, you know, get a network of your peers because you can learn so much from them. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of touched on it a bit, but what other advice would you give a CFO in their first 90 days at a new company? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, there's a few things. I'm sort of a big person in building alliances. So, you know, I would say, you know, unless if you're working for a huge company and, you know, you've got 600 direct and indirect reports, it might not be practical. But if you've got a manageable number of direct reports, spend some time one-on-one with them, find out what motivates them, what they're good at, you know, what their goals are and how, how they can be a critical part of your team. Uh, build alliances cross-functionally. You don't want to be thought of as that accounting guy. Mm-hmm. Be out there, spend very little time behind the desk, meet with the other C-suite executives. If you're, you know, if, you, if your company builds something, go to the plant, see how it's built. If you're a software company, talk to some of the engineers, find out, you know, what it is that they do, what they need to be successful. Get to know your board members as well. And one CFO told me uh, what she likes to do, and, she, and she's a, what you'd call a serial CFO. I think she's, mm-hmm. she's probably been a CFO eight or 10 times now. But she told me when she starts a new job, she'll reach out to the CFOs of the five biggest customers. And, you know, it's not that she's trying to sell to them. That's not really her thing. But she's simply trying to, you know, build a relationship with them, understand their business, how her company fits into it. And, you know, by the way, you know, that was really helpful at the start of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the salespeople say, yeah, our customers are going to do this, she could call her friend, the CFO at the customer and said, you know, look, we're, we're sort of counting on this is, you know, is that real? What can we do to help, help you, you know, continue to be successful, you know, whether it's extended payment terms, whatever it might be. Those relationships are critical. And sometimes CFOs are the only ones that can have them. That's fantastic. So you have a chapter in the book on building elite teams. Why is intellectual curiosity so important when hiring a successful finance candidate? Yeah, it's a great quality because, you know, especially with automation and just the pace of change of businesses today, if you hire somebody who's, you know, really good at one thing and that's all they want to do until they retire, that's not going to be a really good fit as your company grows and evolves, right? Just think of, we're we're unlikely to to face anything like COVID again in our careers, Mm -hmm. but just think of how different things were before COVID and after COVID. And if you had a team of people who just sort of did their tasks and they didn't ask challenging questions and they weren't thoughtful about it, they would not have been able to help you survive COVID. They would have just kept doing the same thing that they were doing before COVID. But you want those people who want to understand the business, who want to learn, who want to grow, who will challenge you a little bit. Hey, I, uh, I can think of a better way to do it. You know, in, in my own career, I, I had, she was an executive assistant. And, um, you know, I would ask her to do a couple of things for me and, and she'd sometimes challenge me. I just remember, hmm. I loved it though. She'd say, you know, I can do that just like you described, but I think I can make it better. And she'd give me a couple of ideas. Sometimes I didn't take them, but most of the time they were really good ideas and they made me better at my job. And if she would just, you know, not intellectually curious and just wanted to do the job, I wouldn't have benefited from those ideas. So. Yeah, I think that's a good piece. And I think something I see as well as around like intellectual curiosity is really highly correlated to coachability. And 
you know, someone who's interested in learning and trying to figure things out is also can be open to feedback themselves. I think those are two sort of things I see, like the two other traits, like the kind of the two traits I see, I want to see hand in hand is can they take coaching or can they learn a new way if this is a different way than they did before? And can they go try to figure out problems that they run into and, you know, rather than just be, uh, have a roadblock and, you know, just keep on doing it, even though it's the most, even if it feels inefficient or doesn't make sense, let's just keep on doing it anyway. Yeah, you don't want those sorts of people because you, the, the job is too vast, right? You, mm -hmm. you know, you just sort of have to have a controller or whatever it might be who can, you know, make the changes that are necessary and not just follow something because the uh, employee handbook says to do so. Circumstances change. You need smart, thoughtful people who can change with them. And the other thing is the reality of the world today is that there's just a lot of turnover and you're in a constant scramble to keep your best people because your competition and even people who aren't your competition are going to try to uh, pry them away from you. So if they're intellectually curious, you can continue to give them challenging, meaningful work. You can keep them, you know, even if there are companies that can pay them a little bit more money. But if they like being challenged, you know, they're not going to stay. Despite gut instinct, people generally don't leave for money or at least mm -hmm. solely for money. Yeah. You know, naturally, it's you want to leave. You, you want a pay jump. At least I always did. But, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I never looked for a new job because I was unsatisfied with the salary I was making. It was because I was unsatisfied with something else. Usually, you know, just boredom set in. So Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So the last piece I want to ask this book is if you want readers to take away one thing from the um, Secrets of Rockstar CFOs, what would that be? I would say you can't be a great CFO sitting behind the desk, you know, understand the business, talk to employees, talk to customers, read, you know, if, if groups like Gartner and other people like that cover your company, read those reports, get, get sort of the perception of what people are thinking. Talk to your competitors or similar companies, your strategic partners, whatever it might be. Just always be thoughtful and aware of what's going on in your surroundings. Did you see the movie, The Intern? Yeah. By just... Yeah, uh, if you might remember, it was with um, Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro. But the opening scene in The Intern, um, Anne Hathaway's character was on the customer support desk. And, it, you know, you later found out she was the founder and president of the company. But she actually picked that up. She added that into the character. She followed a very successful CEO who went through a journey similar to her character. I believe it might have been the CEO of Spanx, as a matter of fact. But, um, but that person, and I'm not sure if it was Spanx, so... I'm sorry if I got you wrong, but, you know, she used to make it a point to spend half a day every week on the customer support line. Mm -hmm. And she just found that helped understand the business a lot because it was an internet retailer. It's like, why'd you pick this? What was the buying experience like? You know, was the delivery good? What could we do better? That was just information. She wasn't going to get that from her team. She could only get that kind of direct feedback from the customers talking to her. And, you know, so Jules brought that into the movie. And I think it's great advice. Now, you know, if you work at NASA, you might not want to jump on this, you know, the support desk when they're launching a rocket. But uh, if you work for a more conventional business, give it a go. I think you'll learn a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think about that too, around even like the kind of the core question of, of this podcast of these awkward conversations. If if I think of my customers, one of my customers as a head of finances, my employees, you know, why did they think this was in policy or why did they make this purchase or was it they just didn't know the policy? So, you know, and so I can start kind of thinking back first principles of how to solve it. So I think that's like a big piece of, you know, takeaway for me is that, you know, there's sort of like 
360 view of all of your different stakeholders as a CFO. And mm -hmm. then from there, using that as a place, a, a jumping off point to dive in a, a one step deeper to actually develop strategy of knowing, you know, oh, your customers are thinking that actually thinking this. And so this is a, you know, an idea of a, you know, a new market to go in or a new product to launch or a new policy to change if something's confusing to employees. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there, there are some employees that we've all worked with difficult people, right? <laughs> like I, sure. I worked with a sales guy. I actually had to change the policy with him because he flaunted it. And mm -hmm. it's boring, but it shows human nature. So our policy was if you, if you had a meal over twenty four ninety nine, you had to have a receipt for it. So he had three meals a day, five days a week between $20 and $24.99. Never had a receipt. And I just didn't think that he was actually doing that. I couldn't prove it, of course. Mm -hmm. But so I said, okay, I'm going to lower the policy to $14.99 just for this one person. Any meal over yep. $14.99 needs a receipt. All of a sudden, every meal was $10, <laughs> 20, you know, 15, 17 meals a day between $10 a week, excuse me, $14.99. Wow. He knew the rule and wow. he, you know, to him, he was just going to manipulate it as best he could. So, yeah, that, that's, that's really funny. And one aside, I have a similar story, you know, so I, I work at TeamPay, which is a spend management software. We can actually set rules for individual people and they don't even. Mm -hmm. in, in, oh, really? In, so I, I, I can notify myself about a specific employee. So I had an employee, a couple of companies ago when I was using TeamPay, um, also in the sales team, also is, you know, um, you know, a difficult person to work with. And, you know, and, and they didn't even have to know that I was actually having higher scrutiny of their expenses than everyone else. Yeah, it, I could have used that because this actual same guy, he just did everything. Like I remember he, um, he'd get a rental car and he'd put in miles for the rental car. It's it's like nothing. <laughs> he'd, he'd you know pay, he'd put in a receipt yeah. to get the gas at every receipt, but like he he covered Texas, and then also so. double dip on the miles. Yeah, yeah, but like, yeah I've. In, what do you mean? My what are you putting in miles for the rental car? They're not. It's not your car. Why would we reimburse you for that? But yeah, he claimed he was confused. You know, he wasn't confused, but you can't prove he wasn't confused, so you just remove it. But yeah, we had talk about some difficult conversations. We had one or two over the years. Uh, that we worked together for like three years. I think he left because I was making him miserable. So, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a whole nother conversation of employees who've left after the difficult conversations I had to have with him. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'd love to move on to your, your your most recent book, Jack, The Psychopathic CEO: An Executive Survival Guide. Uh, would you just give a quick background on this book? Sure. And as it turns out, about fifteen percent of CEOs in America are psychopaths. Mm -hmm. And that's roughly the same percentage of the prison population of psychopaths. <laughs> so like I have a friend, he actually, he works in a prison and, you know, I, I, you know, pointed out to him, if, if you do your day job in the prison and then you go to a function at night, like a business function, say honoring CEOs, you're probably with the same percentage of psychopaths at both events, even though you wouldn't think it, wow. but it's kind of a scary thing, but there are a lot of, uh, a lot of aspects of corporate America that are very attractive to psychopaths and that enable them to be very, very successful. So, you know, they sort of found their niche in the executive suite, the ones who have the talent to get there actually perform pretty well. Uh, some of them, not all of them. Yeah. yeah. Can you give me a little background? Like what makes a CEO a psychopath and what are some of those traits that, you know, someone should look out for? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say that being a CEO would actually make you a psychopath. Like, I think you would, you know, enter the world as a psychopath. I don't, I don't know that you can yep, actually yep. become a psychopath. You can become a sociopath, 
But anyway, yeah, I mean, a lot of the qualities are just like one, the major quality of being a psychopath is just you, you cannot relate to people, you cannot care about people, which isn't really, you know, not a great quality necessarily, but it enables you to make very difficult decisions very easily because you, you can, if you need to lay off 20% of your company, you can do it without feeling one ounce of guilt and you don't have to second guess yourself a little bit. The other thing is like a lot of them are phenomenal communicators and, you know, that inspires people to, you know, believe in them and whatnot. They just inspire a lot of trust in people that they can. Just a ton of them are very, very charismatic. The willingness to lie and the ability to lie really well plays a big, big role in their success. And the other thing is people who study them, they call it a grandiose sense of self-worth, which to me sounds a lot like arrogance. I'm not sure why they don't just call it arrogance, but, you know, they're very arrogant, but, you know, one man's arrogance is another person's confidence, right? So yeah. it, just a lot of times they can just, they're very sure of themselves. They're very confident decision makers. And these are all qualities that, you know, can translate well into corporate America. You know, the ability to make quick, analytical, unemotional decisions, you know, that's a great quality. The ability to inspire people to believe in you and to work hard for you, mm -hmm. you know, who doesn't want that in a CEO, right? But, you know, unfortunately, it's a quality that psychopaths possess in spades, so. Yeah. Well, it seems you're pretty passionate about this. So what inspired you to write this book then? Yeah, I worked, he, when I worked with him, he was the VP of sales. And I'll just say he orchestrated pretty significant systemic, you know, fraud throughout the company. We, we were in a reseller environment. And um, he, unbeknownst to me or anyone on the finance team, he was actually issuing side letters to the resellers which meant that they could return the product if they didn't find an end user. I didn't know this, so I was shipping it, recognizing revenue, trying to collect it. And then one of the, one of the salespeople actually told me about it. He just said, look, I, from what I know about you, I can't believe you signed off on this. I want you to know that we're doing this. And when I challenged the VP of sales on it, he, he just absolutely went ballistic at me. You know, I just remember him like sticking his finger in my face and yelling, how dare you? He knocked over a table really through a temper tantrum. And I later found out not only did he know about it, but that he, that he orchestrated the whole thing. I remember thinking, you know, Meryl Streep, Robert De Niro wouldn't have put on a better acting performance than this guy. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, wind the clocks forward a couple of years, I met a, uh, it's actually one of our own conferences. We had a, um, an FBI agent uh, who was an expert on uh, corporate psychopathy. And she was describing psychopaths in the executive suite. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, you know, what I just thought was a jerk, you know, he checked all of the boxes that she gave for a psychopath. Hmm. And uh, then she said, by a show of hands, how many people feel they've worked for a psychopath? And about half of us did. And I was just kind of hooked. You know, it's just one of those things uh, I wanted to learn more. You know, what would motivate somebody to behave in this way? And uh, I'd always wanted to write a book. And when COVID came along, I said, it's now or never. So I, I wrote the book at the start of COVID. So. Oh, I, I love that. That's a a great COVID uh, hobby. Some people learned to bake bread, some people learned to knit, and you wrote a book. A book on psychopathy, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in this book, you argue that most people are bound to work for at least one psychopathic CEO in their career. You know, how do you deal with this situation if you happen to be one of those people working for a psychopathic CEO? Sure, and you know, largely just in America at least, it, it sort of becomes almost a mathematical probability 
because you know because mm-hmm. if if 15% of psychopaths of CEOs are indeed psychopaths you know i i think the average american now has 14 jobs during his her career so you, you just kind of run the numbers one of them is going to be reporting to a ceo in fact maybe you know more than one but you know th- there's a few things you can do uh, and i often when i give this presentation i ask a question because one of the people who's believed to be a psychopath and he's passed on and I won't, I, I'm not qualified to say who is and who isn't, but Steve Jobs of Apple computer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people consider him to have been a psychopath. Uh, But I asked people, you know, show of hands, would you work for Steve Jobs if you knew he was a psychopath or would you work for Elon? Elon Musk most certainly isn't a psychopath, but would you work for Elon Musk if he was a psychopath? And, you know, I say I would, I would just because I think you could learn a lot from it and you don't have to, you know, take ethical shortcomings, but most people would, most people, their instinct is to run. And that's actually a a pretty good instinct. If you know the person's a psychopath, few psychopaths are in the jobs must type of category, right? If you're talking a garden variety psychopath, you, you might be better off just leaving, finding a new job, but you know, maybe you love your job. Maybe you have some loyalty to your team and your company. There are people that try to work with psychopaths. It's difficult, but it can be done. Again, if Steve Jobs was a psychopath, you know, there people who worked for him have, you know, a lot of them have nothing but good things to say about him. You know, he, you know, deep, but a lot of that's because of his charisma and whatnot. But the point is that you can work with a psychopath, at least some of them. So, you know, just always remember everything that they care about. If it benefits them, then it's worth doing. So whenever you're framing something to a psychopath, explain it to it why it's in their best interest. You know, you you can't go to a psychopath and say, we shouldn't do a layoff because these people have families and will devastate their lives. They don't care. But if you can make a persuasive case why they're better off without the layoff, that, you know, this will be disillusioning to the, you know, we lay off 20%. This will be devastating to the 80% who stay our top performers will leave once they think there's some instability. I think we need to have a stronger, more united front. That might get them because now they might have a selfish reason to to not do the layoff. But you know, if you if you frame it in terms of right and wrong or that sort of thing, you're not going to get with them. So just keep that in mind when you're dealing with a psychopath that it is all about them. And the other thing, you know, just uh, I recommend that you they can turn on you. Psychopaths they very quickly kind of put you in buckets. And to mm-hmm. oversimplify, it's friend or ally and in between. And you can move between buckets depending upon how circumstances change. So I would say document, if you are if you suspect you're working for a psychopath, document everything, Peter. Uh, just, yeah. you know, just if they give you praise, document it. If you, you know, if you help close a big deal, whatever you do, document it. And by the way, document it like on a spiral bound notebook that you keep at your house or something. Uh, don't document it on the company computer because they might be reading it. They tend to be a little bit paranoid yeah. that way. And employers actually do have the right to read their employees' emails. So don't put it front and center for them. But, you know, I'd say document everything and trust nobody. They inspire a lot of loyalty. So there have just been instances that they can turn people against you either through charm or fear. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one person told me she was the... CEO sexually harassed just about everybody in the company, apparently, at least all of the women. It was a smallish company. And she was going to go to the board to take them on. And none of the other women who told her that they'd been harassed 
were willing to stand up and she doesn't know if they hmm. were threatened, if they were bribed, doesn't know exactly what happened, but she found herself reporting a serial sexual harasser and no one to support her. So, you know, don't think you have any allies. The other thing, but I say like you should leave. Like we, I know a guy like he, he decided to stick it out and it can be really stressful working for these people. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. were seeing like a, this guy, he was seeing an analyst like, you know, every Thursday for a couple of years, even after the experience. And, you know, he ended up suing the company, didn't win. So, you know, ultimately lost his job, lost $50,000 in legal fees. And he, uh, he's talking to a professional because he needs help all the time. And, you know, do you like your job that much? You know, he, this person's life would have been better off it if he just quit good good skill set you know would have found a mm -hmm. job in no time so yeah you know the sort of extreme narcissism you see in a lot of sort of startups and it's surprising i was just at a a conference a couple of days ago and it was surprising as to how many other cfos mentioned they'd worked for a ceo that like committed fraud or some other embezzled money or other sort of like financial like high financial crimes i'm mm -hmm. just like stuff you would you expect to read in the newspapers but just don't yeah, it, and you know it's, it's just it's not reported, and people don't realize that's how 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 often it happens because boards covered up, the executive teams covered up, you know all this sort of stuff that doesn't actually you know make the headlines unless it's like a a huge company like Better dot com or you know WeWork. Oh, or like Harvey Weinstein, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he, he yeah he had this uh, in my book. I talk about people who empower psychopaths, and he just had people that protected him, you know, and a lot mm -hmm. of people. I don't think. I don't think many people knew the extremity of the behavior, but a lot of people knew that at a minimum he was harassing women and destroying careers for people who didn't go along. But his employment contract, it actually, it literally allowed him to sexually harass employees. He would just pay a cash fine if he was found to have harassed somebody. So, and so who knew about that? You, you know, probably the senior, the, the chief financial officer and senior HR person knew. I don't know for sure, but you know, chances are board members had to have known, uh, you know, there had to have been a comp committee. The, the company's lawyers knew, right? Can you imagine you graduated from law school and you, you know, you're excited, you're working for some law firm and you know, you're working for the Weinstein brothers um, film company and you're, you're typing up an employment contract like that. You know, you're, what, what the hell is this? What? So you can do what and can just pay a fine? You know, what are they thinking? But, you know, he was just a monster. And, you know, a lot of people allowed him to get away with it. You know, there's there's the people that said, well, we're making great films, we're winning Oscars, so it's the cost of doing business. And, and even, like, he sexually harassed Gwyneth Paltrow when she was 19. For Harvey, there were a million Gwyneth Paltrows in his, lives, in his mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And he destroyed not only careers, but he actually destroyed their lives. He didn't bluff. If he yeah. said he was going to ruin your career, he ruined your career. So... Mm -hmm. And, you know, a classic. Yeah, I think. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, as I say, like, you, you mentioned a lot of the sort of like the manipulation techniques um, you outlined in the book. What are some of the, what's it like talking to someone like that? Like, what are some of these? I um, mean, like, and maybe as a CFO, how do you like, or even as an employee interviewing, how do you identify this is like, oh, this is potentially happening in this company? How do you identify this before you even start? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? But, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, so it starts with the interview process and, First of all, train everybody to interview, you know, ask mm -hmm. tough questions. The other thing is like, they're going to come well prepared for the interview. They're going to read up on the company and we kind of made it easy on them. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, you go to your company's website, you can probably understand your company's core values. Uh, maybe you list some charities that you support. 
you know, maybe you list the employee of the month, whatever it might be, you give a lot of information to someone who's manipulative by nature to use to convince you to hire them for their job. And in fact, yeah. there was one, a, um, one HR person told me, she interviewed a guy and the, her company supported Alzheimer's research. And during the interview of this guy, he actually started talking, he lost his mother from complications of Alzheimer's and he started crying during the interview. Wow. They, hired, they ended up hiring the guy. A year later, they met his mom. She's like, wait a second. <laughs> he apparently didn't remember the lie that he told. And she uh -huh. died of Alzheimer's and you broke down and cried recalling the story, right? I mean, wow. but that's these people, you know, they're gift, good liars. He can actually, you know, I don't know about you. I couldn't fake a tear right now if I, uh, you know, I just, I just don't have that ability to do that. But uh, yeah, you know, so they're gifted, gifted liars and they're willing to do it. To them, it's all about them getting the job. And they will manipulate you. They will know stuff about you. Uh, they'll play on your emotions. You know, if you played football in high school and that's somehow publicly available knowledge, they'll talk about how much they like football. Now, it's okay to be manipulative. I remember when I was a CFO, small company, I interviewed most of the salespeople. And, you know, a lot of them would talk about how they made a good effort to understand revenue recognition and they didn't like to cheat on expense reports. I get it. They were <laughs> yeah. playing to the audience, which, you know, they assumed yeah, yeah. that I would care about those things. They probably didn't talk about clean expense reports for the VPs of sales and marketing, but, you know, yeah. I get that, but that's not unethical. That's just playing to your audience. The problem is they do it to an extreme, but so mm -hmm. train your team to look for those sorts of things. And by the way, you know, if you have eight people interview a CEO, don't have it be eight individual interviews, actually do it as a unit, get together afterwards, mm -hmm. talk about it. What did you learn? You know, what seemed not right to you? And by the way, if, if there's something off, even if you can't put your finger on it, don't be afraid to tap the brakes and slow down the process a little bit. One of their tricks is that they will say, hey, this has been great. I'm really enthusiastic. I did get an offer earlier last week. I've got a deadline of Friday. Do you think we can accelerate this? They actually want to walk out the door with an offer in hand. And, you know, that may be legit. But, you know, if you have, if you have worries fight that battle a little bit because it's it's a mistake that can be devastating to you and to the company if you hire the wrong person yeah i, I see that a lot especially now with the large war in talent and every team seem to be hurting for needing uh, more employees i you know i think a lot of companies are cutting corners in terms of interview process evaluation i think one piece which we haven't talked about is even references right not just references for employees you're hiring but like something i i've done it most companies I've gone to find, you know, find references for people who've worked at the company in the past and can speak to the culture independently of who you know, may, may not be there anymore, but can speak to the culture and the CEO and the management team. Yeah. And, you know, I have a story that this came out during the book too. I don't know if you, you read the book, but he, mm -hmm. uh, this one guy, he kind of destroyed the company, you know, just burned every bridge possible. Everybody hated him and he couldn't possibly get a good reference. So what he did is he, he went to Walmart or Target or one of those places and got a burner phone. And he didn't use it other than when people asked for a reference, he gave that phone number. Wow. And he claimed to be one of the VCs who was on the board of the company and said, yeah, do you know, Jack McCullough, yeah, the best CEO I ever worked for. If you can hire him, do it and do it fast. He is a godsend. You'll not regret it. So he was pretending to be, be a VC, wow. giving himself a reference. And because he only shared that phone for that purpose, he knew that any incoming call to that phone was a reference check on him. And so call people you know. 
personally. You know, it's easy mm -hmm. with LinkedIn and other places, right? We, we all know each other, six degrees of separation. D don't trust the references because it may not even be the reference that you think it is. So yeah, that was kind of nasty when they, because they found out they ran into the, v it happened in Boston. They ran into the VC a mm -hmm. year later and they said, you know, we hired that guy at your recommendation. He's just a nut. It's like, not my recommendation. I would certainly not, not hire that guy. And they kind of pieced it together that he faked his own reference. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes back to the sort of the networking community, uh, Jack, to kind of like bring it all full circle of like, even if you don't know someone at this company, the community's generally speaking, someone will know, right? Whether it, whatever industry it is, other, other CFOs will of the same industry, same industry will know this company and know the reputation. And so how, you know, it's like trying to build those sort of connections of people in, you know, in advance of taking a role or interviewing for a position. Exactly. It's all about those relationships at, at that moment, they're invaluable, right? If this person's been a CEO for three different companies over the last 10 years, he's touched hundreds of lives. You can get to them. You can talk to an investor. You can talk to a direct report. You can talk to a junior employee who just saw stuff that, you know, they, they might've found crazy. So, you know, it, it's definitely worth it to, to rely on your network and, and build it. So. Great. And any final comment you'd like to wrap up with? No, I just think, um, you know, I know that this is all about sort of difficult conversations and, you know, it is both an art and a science to resolving these issues. But the big thing is empathy. I, I think even though we've been talking a little bit about psychopaths, I think most people that you'll come across with in your work life, I think if you get to know them, even if you're disagreeing with them all the time, you probably actually have similar goals. You just have different ways of pursuing the goals and, you know, maybe you draw ethical lines or whatever at different points. But I, I think most people you work with, just find the commonalities, you, you know, build a bridge to them. And sure, difficult conversations there, you're never going to not have them unless you're both being phony and that's not doing anyone good. But, you know, mm -hmm. just be, be empathetic, ask them to be empathetic and just, you know, resolve the differences. Understand not all of them. You're not always going to agree, but you've, you know, you've got the same target work hard to achieve it. Yeah, I think that's uh, some great, great advice of, you know, sort of care deeply about the person, but, you know, ch you know, challenge directly. Yeah, indeed. So. All right. Well, these have been great insights for our listeners. And thanks so much for being an excellent first guest with uh, such a great, awkward conversation. Um, <laughs> so just real quick, is there any social media or LinkedIn page you want people to get in touch with you? Sure. Well, the easiest way to reach me is actually I'm the uh, the king of texts. I get too many emails and I can't respond quickly. But if anyone wants to send me an SMS, that number is 617-678-0957. And if you just want to learn about the CFO Leadership Council, it's cfolc.com. And, uh, you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Great. And also for folks who are listening, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Uh, until next time, thanks a lot.